Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Hello there, my name is Des Cahill and my guest today has a great story from Tala in County Dublin. She now runs a top restaurant in the trendy and fashionable Chelsea district of London. It's a pleasure to welcome Anna Haw. And Anna, for anyone to achieve what you've achieved is a story of perseverance. So were you cooking at an early age? Yes. So my mother's a great cook. She made everything homemade to, to four ungrateful little brats, I would say. You know, she, you know, homemade jams, homemade cereals, homemade everything from scratch, you know, chicken stocks and, and all the rest. And I would go supermarket shopping with her every uh, Wednesday when she'd do the shop. And I'd beg her for the processed food. I'd beg her for the, the suspiciously pink uh, raspberry jam as opposed to the gorgeous, amazing, luxurious homemade gooseberry jam and blackcurrant jam that herself and, and sometimes my dad would help make too. But yeah, I mean, years later, we're all very aware that we were blessed to be raised in a household like that because it gives you life skills that you don't even know you're gaining skills when, you know, when you're being taught how to cook at home like the way she did. And did being a chef enter your head at that stage? No, God, no. Never. My whole time while I was in school, I, I, I loved English. My best subjects were like history, classical studies and English. So I, I loved anything to do with, with, with stuff like that. And then I was doing it. I was helping my friend's mother, Liz Dunn, do like um, she was having a party and I cooked all day. I just, you know, said I had told her my ideas and I cooked <laughs> all day. And, and then after finishing cooking, I fell asleep upstairs. And when I woke up, Liz turned around and she goes, Anna, you become alive in the kitchen. Have you ever considered becoming a chef? It was just hilarious. Like I didn't even, I didn't even know it was a, a thing you could you could do. I know it sounds ridiculous because mm. I'd eaten in restaurants and I understood that the food had to come from somewhere. But it was a little bit like somebody saying, you know, I, me saying, oh, look at the stars in the sky, you know, they're gorgeous, and someone saying you should become an astronaut. Like it just seemed so far removed as a as an opportunity. And I went into school the next day and I said to the career guidance teacher, I think I know what I want to be. I want to be a chef. And she laughed, like la- like tears came out of her eyes and she slapped her thigh, like as in she thought this was gold, right? This was amazing. And she just said, Anna, one day when you get married, you'll be sick of cooking. I asked around a few other teachers, but it just never came to any veil. But then one year I, I was in Jersey when I'd finished school and I walked into a, a kitchen almost by accident. I was asked to open uh, tins of fruit cocktail, not very glamorous, but something in me clicked. And I was like, this feels so right. Like, and I, I don't understand how I had the foresight to understand that I was comfortable in that environment. But then I, I went home and I, I you know, registered with Colbrough Street and, and, and then I moved forward to this kind of road that I'm still on now. It always strikes me, though, Anna, as one of the toughest career paths for anybody in that the hours are very long, the stress levels are very high, you know, you've you're working with people who you may or may not get on with and everyone's under pressure. So it's a very high pressure environment as well, isn't it? I loved it. I loved it. The hours didn't bother me. Uh, The failing did. That was very hard because when you're a young chef, you don't understand anything. You don't understand control. And to be a chef, it's all about control, control of temperature, 
control of timing, control of your thoughts, control of your, your, your section. Like everything is all about understanding, you know, what one minute can do to, to, to a meal or to a service or to an evening. But I loved it. I absolutely, I just became and still do feel like I become alive when I'm in the kitchen, when that machine starts going clickety-click-click-click and the orders come through, I, my heart beats faster. But it was extremely hard. You, you, are, you are right. It's an unmatched kind of environment when it comes to, to working in a kitchen because it's quite open, but it's also very private. So sometimes uh, people's uh, control <laughs> yeah. um, is, is the problem. You know, too much control and maybe losing control. It's, it's a... It, it can be a dark place. Generally, did men dominate the, the business for a long time? Truth is, it was a profession for people who had no other options. We're talking about when I would have first become a chef, so over 20 years ago, it still kind of had that label, but it was definitely coming out of that because of chefs like Marco Piero White and the Rue Brothers and uh, and uh, and even uh, back home in Ireland, you know, with um, with uh, Gibos and, and uh, Le Crevan, like these kind of restaurants that were making people think differently about the career but that takes a long time to change so what you had was a, a kind of a job where where if somebody was a bit disruptive in school they were kind of told well this is your only option because you won't follow rules properly so they were encouraged to go into kitchens and because kitchens got a lot of personalities like that they were very aggressive well you know I was disencouraged to to go into the environment because I was told it was aggressive and it wasn't suitable for females but I was the youngest of four kids so I definitely was used to battles <laughs> um I really look back on my my years uh, of of being a commie chef and apprentice chef with almost rose-tinted glasses I, I I don't know how I survived it but I bizarrely did and loved it at the same time it was a strange place for for any young person to be in never mind a, a female well we'll chat about that route I mean to eventually owning your own place, a top place in London. But your first musical choice, Anna? I'm so lucky that I was raised in a household of music. Van Morrison and Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton, all these these musical icons were, were very, very prominent, place, prominent yeah, yeah. In, in, in my childhood memories. And an album by Van Morrison, No Gurra, No Method, No Teacher, is such a strong album. It's, it's one of my favourite albums. It might even be my favourite album of all time for two reasons. One, uh, it was always a, a, an album that was played when we would travel in the car. We used to travel across Europe. But second of all, when I first moved to London, and it was lonely in London, on a day off I would go up to my sister's flat and she would she would be in the kitchen. She'd maybe be pouring me a glass of wine or getting a tasty little snack together first. And I would go straight into her sitting room and I would play this album. And the minute the intro would come, the little twinkly piano noise would come, I would feel stress drop out of my shoulders I would feel like for the next few hours I'm going to have like such a lovely time it sounds kind of very dramatic but I really felt it was like nearly meditating when this music would come on I would go onto another plane and it, it you know it's pure happiness Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1 that's Van Morrison the choice of today's guest London restaurateur Anna Haw so Anna Take us through the route because it's common, isn't it, that you have a much-travelled route in in kitchens, as most chefs do, don't they? Yes, we're encouraged to travel. And when I was younger, I didn't really understand it. But the truth is, for you truly to learn, you kind of have to be um, in a different environment. So that um, if I'd stayed in Dublin, I, I think I would have had 
a whole load of restaurants to have learned from and they would have been amazing. So I still, you know, believe I would have had a great career. But by living in Paris and living in, you know, I did um, some stages in Galicia and San Sebastian as well. And, and I've been to um, L.A. And, and I've done some, uh, you know, other little bits and pieces where I've traveled around the, the world, as well as obviously working in London. I feel it really changed me as a person because you jump into a culture and you jump into your job in a different way because that's your main focus. So in some respects, it can be really unhealthy yeah. because you're alone. But then in other respects, it can be very, very good because you can get a, a concentrated training. And, and the truth is, when you're a young chef, it's all about training. Like as if, you know, you're going to these extremely technical, high pressured environments and you need to be totally, totally focused to gain, you know, the best you can from them. I could understand, Anna, someone being finding it intimidating having to head, say, to Paris if you don't have the language or whatever. Yeah. But you seem to have found it empowering. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hilarious. And I think about my parents. I mean, listening to this now, they'll <laughs> laugh. You know, they, they brought me to the airport to pack me off to Paris. And I was like, and they were like, you all set for your accommodation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You all set for your job? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it yeah. totally all sorted. I arrived to Paris and I had nowhere to live and I had no job. I just thought if I get over there, because I did send applications out, I did try, but I didn't get any response, no, you know, to my CV. And then day one, as soon as I hit Paris, I found somewhere to live. And then I, do, I, I found a job, I think, on day two or three. And, and that was it. Like, that's uh, the, the behavior of a madwoman. It is a bit. Um, well, hold, hold, let's, let's go through that. So you had, <laughs> you had nowhere to live. Nowhere to live. And how did, well, I, how, how I, did you I, get I, somewhere? I booked a hostel uh, and it was a gorgeous hostel which had a lovely view of the Eiffel Tower if you don't mind. I remember my first food shop I did was 50 euro so I wasn't a woman who was ready to be living in a hostel and my whole memory of Paris I can remember the smell of Paris walking down through the streets in a good way some Mm. people would disagree about the smell of Paris but it was such a time of excitement and discovery and just really believing that I was becoming a chef because I'd been cooking, you know, a few years now by the time that I'd gone to Paris. What about, was, what about language, Anna? I, I did French in school, so I had a very, very rough grasp of French. Mm. But there is a language in the kitchen. And if you are a half-decent young chef, you understand when your head chef looks at you that they're looking at you because there's something specific either in the area you're working in or in your expertise in your section that they need and so they uh, the i worked for gualtero marchese who's a very amazing it was an incredible kitchen to work in very famous italian chef one of the most famous italian chefs and all the chefs were italian so they barely even spoke french so we spoke this broken french italian english words peppered in there and they were all convinced that i was fluent in italian because i understood <laughs> how to work in the kitchen it was hilarious they, they one day circled around me and all were speaking in italian and i was trying to guess what they were saying but yeah there's a there's a language of the kitchen and it's a it's very much if you're in tune with the people you work with you're reading their body languages you're listening to or watching what's happening on the pass you then can be quite a useful tool in the kitchen if, if you can if you can read those kind of signs and was that was that the first job you got in Paris? Well, I, I did work in a place for about a week or two as I was trying to build up a little bit of a vocabulary um, and I was still handing around my CVs. I, I can't remember the name of the place, mm. um, but actually I have a few hilarious stories of me there. I misunderstood what they wanted me to do one day. I had to prepare lunches for tour guides yeah. and I got the day wrong 
and I thought they wanted me to have 50 lunches ready. And I think I had something like a half an hour to make the sandwiches, or maybe an hour to like bake the rolls, make the sandwiches, do all the bits and pieces, wrap the bags. Yeah. When my boss came in, he just, for the whole day, he just kept coming back into me. And he kept putting three fingers up in front of my face. And I didn't know what was going on, but he, what he was saying is that normally it takes three people to do <laughs> the amount of lunches that I'd done. But uh, I remember thinking I was going to be fired because I'd wasted food and all the rest. But that was just a little job that um, I had while I just was still. Because London or Paris is a, is a, is, you know, there's so many restaurants in Paris and trying to find a job, the right job was very hard and, and I found the job called, um, it was Hotel Lottie, but because of Myrtle Allen, um, she'd uh, started up this, um, like a kind of, she joined a group of very powerful, uh, like-minded chefs called Eurotox mm-hmm. and there was a Eurotox sign outside the restaurant and that's that's really how I got my job in Gualtero Marquez. And, and you had no friend to go home to at night, Anna, and say, God, I had a tough day or anything, no? Well, no, yes, of course I did. No, I, I did. Uh, no, I was living uh, with my boyfriend at the time. All right. And also, I made friends quickly. Um, you know, I, I was okay. At, I met up with them. Um, there was like an Irish pub nearby. And I met up. There were French people who all went to the Irish pub, ironically. Um, so I, I did have people who I talked to about that job. And that job wasn't... It was hard and it was stressful and, you know, there was times the chef would lose his temper so he would take away our days off and it was quite, you know, aggressive environment, but that was fine. None of that was a, a, a tap of what London was like. London, once I came to London, it was a completely other beast. It was much darker and lonelier and obviously I could understand everything they were saying. <laughs> That's another thing. It's not always a good thing to understand. The culture of kitchens has not been good, sure hasn't traditionally. No, I think it's because it's behind closed doors and uh, a lot of the people are young in the kitchen. So they don't have the experience to kind of stand up and say, mm, this isn't OK or, you know, don't speak to me that way. It definitely is changing. But when I was a young chef, the, there was a, a lot of bullying and a, a lot of the bullying was they, they justified it by saying you know I'll break you down and build you back up a better person like what is that yeah. like what is what does that mean very unhealthy um, environment but also humor is a big part of being in the kitchen and if you're able to joke and you're able to take a joke and you're able to kind of deflect kind of an insult as a, a, a you know in a sarcastic way you that will help you mm-hmm. but if you're not armed with that type of personality for some reason, they will focus on a person and they will really, you know, give them a hard time. The, the bullies wouldn't be very keen on me. I would have gotten myself in a lot, a lot of 2 a.m. cleaning the kitchen on my own from standing up well, for good. somebody else. Not for myself, yeah, but well, for somebody else. Good for you. Good for you. Mm. Let's go to your, your second musical choice, Anna. Oh, so this is from The Gloaming and it's a song called The Lobster. And I heard the song by accident. And for me, it sums up everything I feel about my restaurant, really, Myrtle Restaurant. Well, sorry, maybe it's what I, I strive my restaurant to be. That's probably too presumptuous for me to say my restaurant is even remotely as good as the song because I think the song is just incredible. It's elegant. It's unmistakably Irish. And, you know, when I listen to it, I, I, I just, I, it stops me in my tracks. I, I could be walking through the restaurant doing bits and pieces and the song will come on and it will stop me and it will make me feel 
like I'm on the right path. Like I, you know, I, I'm doing the right thing, opening this restaurant with this strong Irish influence. I think it's, it's a stunning song. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's the lobster from the gloaming, the choice of today's guest, London restaurateur Anna Haw. And Anna, let's let's linger for a moment on your restaurant. For any young Irish business person to go to Chelsea and open a restaurant and, you know, having worked your way there, what a massive oh. undertaking. I mean, it's it's kind of the trendiest area, etc. A fantastic achievement, but but an awful lot of work to actually get it open, I'd imagine. Well, the biggest kind of bulk of the work is is believing in what you're doing and then questioning what you're doing at the same time every single day for a couple of years yeah. you know having an idea having a great idea is is brilliant well done but it's the I, it's the fact that you have to fight to protect that idea to make it grow to challenge it um that that's the hardest part of, of opening the restaurant because to say you're going to open a, a kind of modern irish restaurant is not something people can always relate to. A lot of work went into finding suppliers, finding different small, subtle kind of nods to Ireland or all throughout the restaurant. But when you walk in the the room, you don't immediately go, oh, I'm back in Ireland. Because I wanted it to be like as if, if you bumped into me on the street, you wouldn't immediately pick me out from a crowd and go, oh, she's Irish. But obviously the minute you speak to me, you would know I'm Irish. And and the restaurant's a little bit like that, where you might first look at it and it just, you know, just looks like a a nice little restaurant. But then as you read the menu and you pick up the Irish pewter water goblets or the the Galway crystal uh, champagne um, goblets as well, like we've got loads of different little touches that are are unmistakably Irish. And some of the drawings are, well, all of the drawings are done by an Irish artist uh, from Dublin. So, you know, things like that was, was very important for me. It's such a cosmopolitan area. I mean, what kind of mix is your clientele? Well, it's hilarious. You've got you, you've everybody, every nationality coming to the restaurant, but they all have one common kind of link, and it's they love somebody who's Irish. So it could be their mother, it could be their friend, it could be you know an aunt or an uncle or. Well, it, it could be for any, their, their, their uh, son or daughter could be studying in Trinity College. You have all sorts of people that come through the restaurant, but the biggest connection is that they, they love somebody who is Irish. Wow. Um, and I wasn't expecting that. And I get a lot of Irish people coming through as well. A lot of people when they're in the airport, this, the first time this happened, my heart skipped a beat. I answered the phone and uh, there was a couple they were coming over from uh, Dublin airport and they were just boarding the flight and they read something in a magazine uh, or a newspaper that they were reading and they asked if they could possibly you know book a table and I was like this is incredible yes you can (laughs) and then the idea that as they'd hung up the phone I loved the idea of picturing them flying through the sky to my restaurant it was a really you know it was a lovely moment and explain the name Myrtle Everybody knows who Myrtle Allen is, mm. like she is a, a food icon, but from a, a chef's point of view, she's she's so much more than than the business she created, than Bally Malou. She For me, she represents a person standing up and talking about Irish produce in a way that French people talk about French produce. You know, we, we talk about, you know, French cheeses and foie gras and you know, caviars and all these wonderful things that come from, from France all the time. Um, but Myrtle Allen was talking about, you know, Irish fish and Irish lamb and Irish cheeses. Like she was the first restaurant to ever have an Irish cheese board, which seems like a no brainer for us now. But 
she was groundbreaking and she paved the way for me to to open a restaurant celebrating Irish produce. So I, I thought it was very fitting that um, it should be in her name. And is she aware that it's in your in her name? I, of course, got permission from um, the Allen family. Uh, I And I was very prepared that if they said that they didn't want that, because obviously I, I didn't train in Ballymaloo. My, my background is all quite full on fine dining. Uh, I was ready for them if they'd said no, that I would have obviously called it something else because, I mean, it was it was a huge relief when Darina Allen said that I was allowed to call it Myrtle. I, I, I felt so proud and I was so happy I asked. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's a lovely story, but pride you must have felt the first night you opened. Oh, every day as I'd lift out the Myrtle trees, <laughs> I'd open up and I'd lift out the two Myrtle trees to the to the front entrance of the restaurant. Um I mean, I still have the feeling the restaurant's closed, as as, yes, as you course. obviously know, and I still have the same pride as I lift out the myrtle trees. I I love that this has been twenty years in the making. I always knew I'd be a business owner, but I didn't know it would be in Chelsea and it would be mine. That's another thing which is really hard to do. It's it's, it's all mine. I'm I'm I I still have to pinch myself. It's a, that's an amazing achievement. Listen, you're. Your final musical piece, Anna, is kind of relates to this lockdown time. Yes. So I, I did not choose three Irish uh, songs on purpose. I genuinely mean that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't because originally one of them was definitely going to be R.E.M. because of my brother and how much he loved that when we travelled as kids. But yeah, Fontaine's D.C., the first time, first song I heard of them was Sha Sha Sha. And I was like, that just makes me want to just run and, and jump and, and it gives me so much energy and during the lockdown they've released this song called The Hero's Death and uh, for me it's a gorgeous song I feel like I relate to the song so much but also I feel like I understand the band as they're kind of playing it and, and how they feel and I just think it's a wonderful song to kind of and it will always be a song I associate with with the lockdown So and hopefully after the lockdown things go from strength to strength uh, for you and for Fingers Myrtle. Crossed. Yeah, Anna Hall. Yeah, well, that's the plan. It's a great story, and congratulations on, on how you've achieved it. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.